every chat where we like to talk about contemporary short stories from this lovely genre with the same uh, rigor and affection as we so often discuss the classics. Joining me this month are stalwarts of the chat, Jay Wolf and Matt Holder. In case this is somebody's new uh, first episode experience, whatever. Uh, Jay, why don't you quickly introduce yourself and then Matt, you do the same. Hi, I am uh, Jay Wolf. I'm an editor and author uh, in the general science fiction community. And uh, oh, geez, I write books under the nom de guerre M. Daniel McDowell. And I'm uh, Matt. I write reviews for um, Strange Horizons, where you can find some of my stuff, those other places. Um, I also write fiction as well. And I remain Oliver Brackenbury, editor of New Edge Sword and Sorcery, podcaster of uh, So I'm Running a Novel, currently on hiatus while I finish the outline for the novel. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm the guy whose voice uh, you're hearing when you're not hearing Jay or Matt. True story. So yeah, this month's story, it comes from Tales from the Magician's Skull, issue number seven, which is notable for a couple of reasons, uh, one of them being that it was the first issue of the magazine where the stories were chosen through open submissions. Uh, the first six, plus I guess the um, issue zero they had, uh, were all the direct commissions. So that's kind of neat. The table of contents is a bit more, I guess you could say, random. And within it uh, is somebody who had not showed up in the magazine before, uh, author Mark Rigney, who wrote the story we're going to discuss today, Dara's Tale. Um, I chose Dara's Tale for our discussion this month, Probably because it stuck with me, you know, I still think about it now and again, which I read a lot of short stories, and I can't say that for a lot of them. Uh, also, uh, it was one I just enjoyed enough that I did that thing that all authors, I think, wish people did more, which is I just sent uh, a little email saying to the author saying how much I liked it. <laughs> uh, just realized I was kind of patting my own back there. I'm a saint. Uh, I'm getting choked up on my own heroism here for sending an email. Uh, but... Uh... <laughs> But yeah, anyway, you get the idea. The point is it stuck with me and I thought it was neat and nifty. And um, we're going to go deeper on this. But in a nutshell, I thought it was worth discussing aside from just quality uh, because it felt to me kind of like a, a, a good possible answer to a question I've asked myself a few times while thinking about what we can do in the genre that hasn't been done a lot before, if not never before, uh, which in this case is what would young adult sword and sorcery look like? Young adult is a clear uh, age categorization, not the sort of loosey-goosey usage we get sometimes, which I think Jake could probably speak to better than me, uh, where YA is just kind of a genre unto itself. Like, would you say that's right, Jay, that YA kind of gets abused these days and often just means, like, a kind of specific genre reading for anybody of any age, not so much, like, young adults? I, it's definitely a category in which people have sort of... And I think this is actually, like, more of a marketing problem than it is, like, an authoring or, like, publishing problem specifically, mm -hmm. um, is that it's sort of a basket into which a lot of things have been thrown, and some of those things are not actually, like, young adult-oriented fiction. Um, <laughs> it's also, like, there's a, there's a kind of aggressive gendering that goes with it, which is... Yeah, it almost of, feels like made female somehow even though there's no reason to do that well it's really so it's kind of more insidious than that what it is is that a lot of people who happen to be um women or are presented as in a feminine light in uh in the in the kind of like broader and it, it, this happens a lot in science fiction and fantasy specifically because a lot of the tropes of certain types of, of science fiction and fantasy have kind of become tropes of ya in 
in in like an inadvertent like not actually intended way um but yeah so what happens is that uh authors who are perceived as women or as feminine will get categorized as ya uh to deleterious effect if their stories are not actually ya and so Mm. then this causes this sort of like it causes this sort of weird feedback loop where like um, a female author will come out and say, like, hey, my book's not actually YA. Please stop putting it on YA lists. This is very bad. <laughs> like, and um, it happens especially, I think, personally, um, it, like, having observed it. It happens a lot with authors that are other otherwise marginalized also. So, like, a lot of queer mm-hmm. authors and a lot of BIPOC authors um, have a tendency to get lumped into YA as a means of making them seem less serious, which is kind of insidious in my point of view. Anyways, that yeah, was a really it, long uh, <laughs> diatribe. But, no, that was uh, not a diatribe. That was a nice answer to my question. Thank you. Uh, I appreciated your thoroughness. And honestly, I feel like we go deeper on it because it is, yeah, it is definitely seems to be, uh, pardon me, it does definitely seem to be used as like a diminishing term for the most part, at least in casual conversation that I see online. Um, and yeah, like it makes me think about how, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a little tired, uh, but I feel like in years past, often uh, works written by women would be, miscategorized sometimes as being romance or romance adjacent, even if they weren't just because, wow, look who's writing it. And it feels like this. (laughs) It's basically this. It's the same problem with a slightly different hat. That's what I was going to say. I feel it feels like the update of that kind of modernization. Uh, (laughs) Progress question mark. No. Uh, I'm I'm curious, uh, Matt. Have you ever run into this phenomenon, like in your reading or uh, perhaps uh, in your teaching? Even does the way the students see things? No, the students don't read books, so they don't <laughs> know. But uh, no, I I worked at a um, a public library for about four years, which is also where you'll see a lot of the genre stuff. I don't know. Like I, uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not that old. I'm I'm thirty, and so uh, but even. Like, when I grew up, I don't feel like... Like, YA was, like, becoming a thing because it sort of became a thing with the popularity of Harry Potter and The Hunger Games and Twilight. Mm-hmm. And those were, like, coming out when I was in middle school, high school, etc. Um, but I never... So I don't feel like I ever personally read YA as a young adult because that it didn't quite exist. Um, yeah, I think it I also goes sort of hand-in-hand. There's... There's like the stereotype. I mean, it is about boys. They don't read as much as girls. And so I think that plays into it as well. And I think that's that's only true up until a certain age. Like most kids like to read up until middle school and then it kind of goes away. And part of that might be all this like sort of gender dynamic of like aggressively marketing what's considered YA specifically toward women and uh because like i'd be hard pressed i think to name off the top of my head sort of ya authors that are specifically targeted toward males um i don't know uh there's i mean there are other series that have been around since before i think ya was a thing like the, the rangers apprentice series are still very popular those are categorized as ya now the Gwen's books are categorized as YA now. Um, and uh, Yeah, I think of her as like proto-YA. It's like you could you can say they're aimed at that age group, but they are not 
of the quote unquote YA genre, like tropes and all this of the rest that you know come about as it's become more than just like an age range uh, for categorization. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny as you're saying that, like I'm thinking this would be this would be kind of a regression, but like, you know, we don't have any if we went back to this, but we don't have what you maybe see in decades past of like boys adventure. Uh, you know, <laughs> like I feel like sometimes you go back to the fifties and sixties and even seventies, uh, you know, with SNS's heyday uh, in the second wave, and you see very much marketing reading to boys. Uh, to male presenting uh, kids. So we just said boys back then. Um, so it's like, I don't know if the answer is to now bring that back uh, because that would be also forcing like, you know, a gender binary and all this stuff. It's a bit, yeah. but like, you know, what, what do we do, right? Well, that's a bigger question and we could of course spend a whole hour just on that. But I, I just thought it'd be neat to sort of set the stage by kind of walking around these issues um, before we dive into Dara's Tale by Mark Rigney. Uh, who uh, I think I, I can reasonably infer uh, from my co- brief conversation with him and his web presence, et cetera, is a fella um, and has written in, quote unquote, the masculine genre. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> uh, before I, I get into it myself, uh, Matt, why don't you share with us your general impressions of the story? And then, Jay, you follow and then we'll come back to me. Uh, so I I really en- I enjoyed this one. Uh, I had not. Not read it before. I've not read anything by this author before. Um, the first time through, or I've only read this thing once, but uh, I was I was struck by. So it's a story that is sort of about stories, which is a very kind of popular thing. But um, I think it is doing something a little bit more interesting with it in terms. Of, I mean, there's the reading, the sort of like uh, almost. I mean. There's almost like kind of saccharine reading of this where sort of the, the, because it's like what every sort of English teacher wants people to get out of literature, which is like this sense of inspiration and how stories can change you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that sort of happens at the end. But there's also the other side, the more insidious thing of um, whatever his name, like the, the Trump analog guy. Oh, uh, Garolin. Ireland, and he comes in, he's telling them a story too. And he's telling them a story that they sort of didn't know that they wanted to hear. And which is just as dangerous, perhaps even more so than like the little girl that reads the fairy story and feels inspiration to murder the guy. Um, but I, I, I like that sort of uh, how Rit Rigney presents sort of both, he juxtaposes these two sort of quote unquote power of narrative themes and uh the other thing that i was struck by and i sort of i looked at rigney's website um he, he seems to mostly be a playwright and i think that i that knowing that and reading this i could feel a lot in the sense of how sort of tightly structured i felt like it was like he sort of introduces things and he pays them off and everything there's like an economy to the storytelling and stuff sort of you know like when you think dramas and plays are very formal and very structured um and stuff has to get set up and paid off and i feel like he does that really well at several stages in this um Peter also is constantly doing the play within a play thing which is uh you know, he's doing here as well sort of because the whole narrative right is basically playing out the brief fairy tale we get at the end garolin being the sorcerer character that comes in and corrupts everything and draws the hero to him uh not realizing that she is able to resist uh, his powers or whatever 
uh, but yeah, I you know I'm sure I'll have other things to say about it, but those are the things that sort of immediately stuck out to me and the things that I kind of enjoyed about it. Right on. How about you, Jay? Yeah, um, I really liked that he did the story within a story, and I'm I'm glad to know that the um, the playwright thing came up because that was definitely something I noticed. Also, is that not just the economy of materials, but sort of like he he very much does the Chekhov's gun with a, a prop in the story very very early on that's just sort of like yep that's coming up later <laughs> um one of the things that i noticed about it is that it's sort of a a unique presentation of like sort of a mixture of the like the emperor's new clothes meets like um an interpretation of like the boiling frog fable narrative mm. that um that isn't actually true like if you put a, a frog into a a pot and slowly boil it it'll still jump out but oh. that narrative <laughs> that that narrative idea is really like interesting to um interesting to explore because as humans we have a very high tendency to stay in dangerous situations much longer than we should and so like you can see the the danger and terror closing in around this this community that's being walled off and yeah i did notice also the very obvious trump analog in the in the um uh the building the wall element of this i feel like we're going to see a lot of that um in the analysis of contemporary science fiction in general and in this particular story it was kind of hard to miss um but yeah i really liked the way um I think in particular, I just really like the way he captured like a sort of like tween aged girls world. Like I, mm -hmm. I was actually really impressed by that. Like it was, it's not easy to do that with verisimilitude and I feel like he carried it off. And I think part of that is just like the story economy overall, just like, it's very simple. It's very direct. The language is not overly florid. It's, it's, it's compelling and convincing. And that was, I think, what really, like, stuck with me throughout the reading was just sort of like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, of course, <laughs> this would be the outcome. Um, yeah, I think that would be the my initial impressions. Yeah, I, um, yeah, well, as I said earlier, I really enjoyed it. And a lot of things you guys mentioned also played to my enjoyment of it. The tight structure, you know, there's no overly obvious Chekhov's gun. I must admit, I didn't initially see the pen being put to that use at the end. Um, spoilers, by the way, these are always spoiler-heavy uh, things, but the pen is mightier than the sword, question mark, uh, at the end. Uh, she kills the <laughs> wizard by driving it into the wizard's neck. Luckily, I think the way it was written uh, was not as ham-fisted as I just exclaimed it. Uh, and that's another thing about the story that I feel sometimes belies skill in writing when if you as a reader just kind of describe, you know, moments in it, br br you know, broadly speaking, or the base elements, it can sound kind of like yeah whatever but then you read it and you go oh, okay actually yeah that all ties together really nicely and so yeah the idea of like these competing narratives and killing the wizard with the pen you know like i say i could just come away with it with a, a corny pen is money than sword routine but because um that moment comes right at the end and it doesn't feel too telegraphed and we get there through a journey that gives a sense of a fleshed out world big big enough as it needs to be you know i wouldn't say there was capital w world building going on here um it uh, and with a character who feels, you know, like a real person, uh, not just someone's vague idea of a tween girl. Uh, I, I think it's earned. At the end, I was kind of like, yeah, all right, you know, feels good. All right, <laughs> stab him with that pen. Um, oh, I, I wouldn't say it was problematic. I felt it was like it, it was more like a playwright's idea of inevitability rather than like, you know, oh, this is obvious. Like it was just like, 
there's something going to happen here, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, it was like, pardon me. I gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like in the, in the, in the reading, it, 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 it works. I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I'm saying sometimes I try, I don't mind you trying. <laughs> they were finally agreeing because uh, yeah. yeah it's like sometimes I try and describe a story to someone and if I just go with the base elements like uh, there's a time traveling robot and uh, trying to protect a kid from another time traveling robot you know it can sound really stupid but then you watch Terminator 2 and it's great so <laughs> so in a, in a similar way I guess like I say the you know murdering the, the uh, villain with a pen at the end after the sword doesn't work could sound like a really corny pen is mighty little sword thing but anyway it works I'm, I'm belaboring this point um yeah, I also kind of liked how it did feel potentially in dialogue with the whole YA uh, as it's been thing that we were discussing earlier uh, of the last, let's call it, 15 years. Uh, if only because, you know, we do have a tweenage girl who has a bow, which thanks to Katniss, I feel is particularly uh, seen as a, a female, young female protagonist weapon uh, nowadays. Um, and absolutely, of course, it's coming off of like reading about a character who's aspirational in essentially, you know, her period and setting, you know, YA story. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat because when I read it in the, for the first page the first time, I was kind of like, oh, it's going to get like all, you know, metacritical or whatever. But I think in the end, it was just, it just was whether or not um, Mark intended it, it, it sort of put me in the mind of thinking about contemporary, uh, you know, YA fantasy adventure. And then we read the story, which I feel very firmly hits all the classic uh, notes of, of, you know, capital S, sword and sorcery. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Matt, did this, did this feel like a sword and sorcery story to you? I, I know we so often run into this tedious purity test kind of conversation online, so that's not what I'm going for. I just, you know, did it give you that vibe? I think so. Yeah, like it had the, uh, I mean, it even had the wizard and the tower uh, elements, and uh, it felt very, like, fit within the genre to me. It was very sinister. Um, I really didn't pick up too much on the sort of YA vibes, which is part of me not being very familiar with the the genre in the first place. Um, I was reminded of there's a story that Samuel Delaney has in his collection Tales in Deverion, which uh, in which like an older woman sort of explains to this younger girl like basically how the world works, and they explain the origins of writing and money and capitalism and all these things. And this feels like one of those kind of like moral fable tales, almost, almost more like in the Le Guin sort of vein, someone like uh, Ged sort of feels a close, like a, maybe a closer analog to Danica or, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it had, all, it had the elements, it had the sort of uh, the sinister magic, the very sort of, uh, um, the selfishness of the sorcerer and then the the sort of hero being someone who um, is sort of subversive in the sense that uh, she's not a like a big muscly barbarian. Um, and she ultimately like there's a kind of rejection in some ways of like the ethic of a lot of sort of sorcery in the end, um, which is her sort of rejection of her weapons. Uh which I'm not exactly sure if it works precisely because she just uses the pin to stab the guy. Um, but, you know. Yeah, like I feel like if it was more of a, a Le Guin type YA story, she would have um, defeated his narrative with a counter. Yeah, she would not she have, have done the violence people. thing. Uh, she would have been more sort of canny than that. But in some ways, perhaps the, the form demands some sort of. I mean, that's like fairy tales have these really violent ends because they're telling these like moral stories. 
Um, and so in some ways it's sword and sorcery, but it all, maybe it's also more trying to be a sort of contemporary fairy tale about uh, demagogues and sort of the power of narrative. Hmm. I definitely feel like she, you know, I always think of Brian Murphy's list and definitely I felt like most of that got ticked off here. I mean, she's got more heroic motivations, but I, you know, I would definitely say she was an outsider by the back end of the story. You kind of, you know, she sort of stands apart at the beginning just because of, you know, her interests and so on. But by the end, she's practically the only person in town who hasn't bought into the narrative. So she becomes an outsider over the course of it. And that made, felt very SNS to me. Plus, the bloody deed at the end, right? Uh, ultimately resolving it with violence. Um, how about you, Jay? How did, how did the SNSness of it all strike you? As someone from uh, the more Elric school, as we've discussed <laughs> in the past. Uh, yeah, I mean, actually for me, this was kind of like, a lot of the elements of this felt very um, kind of like bog standard dark fantasy and like, I need to highlight like that. I mean, that's highly favorable for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it had kind of, you know who I was kind of thinking about while I was reading this is Lloyd Alexander, actually. I can um, see that, yeah. Because Taryn is such a pain in the butt in the early books of uh, of that series. But you get, like, you get where he's coming from and you get, like, why he's such a kind of a pain. And, um, you know, it's largely just that he has all these big ideas in his head and he's he doesn't have any filter for them. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like it's pretty similar with Danica, actually, like, She's the she has a like she she sees this thing that's happening around her and nobody else is seeing it and it's making her feel very crazy and unfortunately that actually like is very relatable for me as a person who grew up like in a rural small town and was like you know often the only person going like uh, actually that you know new public policy in the school is probably kind of prejudicial um, you know just sort of like having having to be like the only person seeing something is is a feeling that I've had a lot before. Um, anyway, so like as far as that goes, that that whole thing kind of came together very nicely for me. Um, I don't usually adhere to that particular uh, rubric, so I don't I don't remember all of the specific pieces of it. But for me, this felt absolutely like something I would class as sword and sorcery. I I don't I don't have any objections to that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm I'm just curious uh, to get your oh, yeah. on no, it, it just definitely, the, the definitely squarely hit the hit the mark for me as far as that goes. Yeah, I, I have to think about it a little bit for myself, but I, yeah, I think ultimately it struck that for me uh, too. Like I say, she just ultimately kind of an outsider in her community. Uh, mm -hmm. You could definitely say it's historically inspired, if only because the kind of thing that happens in the story keeps happening uh, throughout history. <laughs> It's <laughs> like, like contemporary, frankly. But yeah, well, you know, yeah, glances nervously at various places. <laughs> um, and actually, that brings me, um, yeah. So, anyway, so yeah, and that has some sort of horrific elements. I mean, okay, giant ants. We've seen them before, but that would be really scary if you were a twin with a, you know, small sword, etc. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think ultimately it hits enough of Brian's seven points. Uh, and that's all he ever says, uh, in case you're not familiar with a listener. Uh, it just has to hit enough for you personally to feel, you know, yeah, this hits it. Uh, so yeah. Um, Coming back to the uh, topicalness of, you know, is, is it Trump? Is it something else, you know, going on here with the whole narrative of a charismatic fraud? Although this guy can actually do some, you know, some uh, sorcery uh, coming in and taking over community and making them afraid of their neighbors and building that wall and all that good stuff. Like, is it is it very contemporary or is it timeless, you know? Uh, and and how, how where does it sit on the ham-fistedness scale to you? Uh, how, well, let's start with you, Matt. How did, how did you feel? Did it, did it sort of 
kind of was it kind of like yeah yeah i know i'm living it buddy or was it like yeah you know this has been happening a long time i think it is both it feels um i mean definitely like demagogues have been around since people i mean that's a term that comes from classical greek and they were very conscious of the danger of the demagogue and the tyrant um i think there are just a lot of uh sort of because so many of these sort of fascistic things are happening now it just feels very contemporary like building the walls forming the militias disbanding the militias gaining the monopoly of force and then banning books and basically like trying to depersonalize what uh this community had previously like uh she finds a sorcerer at the end in his like chamber and he's like gathered about him all of the like personal effects of the people. Um, yeah. So yeah. he's like stripped them of their identity and turned them into like this sort of um mass, which is like a fascistic tendency is to sort of uh gesture toward this kind of um you, you you say you're doing it you you appeal to like a shared commonality in people and you appeal to like a certain type of fear of outsiders and intolerance and then in so doing you sort of like work to depersonalize and disrupt uh, the community building which is often consists of a lot of difference actually um but uh but no i think i mean it feels contemporary just because again these things are happening but i i i I don't know if I would say it felt ham-fisted, at least not uh, immediately. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's definitely, like, very obvious that this is, like, a moral tale. And if you're one of those people that doesn't like your fiction to have a point of view about politics, then I could see this uh, not being for you because Rigney is really clear that, like, this is bad. And there's a certain segment of reader that doesn't want to be told that uh, bad things are bad. Um, but Rigney is sort of, you know, again, he's if, if you're doing the fairy tale thing, you got to satisfy the sort of convention that uh, those things have like a right and wrong morality to them. Um, honestly, I feel like if there's something was ham fisted, I do think it's sort of his approach to the um, the story, the the power of story, like I. There's the like the cynic in me is sort of like rolls my eyes at the kind of idea of um, the sort of this is kind of like the like the liberal uh, sort of impulse to say that like oh literature will like teach you empathy and it will make you you know uh, a greater sympathy for people that aren't like you and like you want to believe that obviously but. The reality is it's just it's not quite that simple like it's more complicated than that and i mean if somebody reads grapes of wrath they're not going to come out the other side a communist uh that's just not how it goes um and they're they're also probably going to still think that all this like capitalist exploitation is fine and not do anything about it um so if anything were ham-fisted i would feel like maybe like that element was perhaps like Rigney, I think just believes more strongly than I do in the in the power of like the word or whatever. Although, again, I do like that you know the story that Garolyn is telling is just as influential and insidious. And honestly, I believe more in that power than I do in 
uh, reading a fairy tale and feeling inspired to resist, unfortunately. But that's just sort of my own uh, outlook. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, yeah, you keep, I, you keep making me think of a line from it, um, which was, I believe, the, the bullshit that was fed to the local woman who had her books taken uh, by Garland, which was, when people start believing what they read, stories kill. And I was like, stories don't kill. Tween girls with a pen kill. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know where I don't know where to take that sentence because it's presented as BS from the wizard. I think, it, I, I think like it cuts both ways. Like I think, yeah. and I think that's sort of what's interesting about it. Like, uh, when people hear that, you know, that others are bad and we should defend ourselves from them, like that's the story that's been told for decades and centuries and millennia. Uh, to sort of the justification and it's that and unfortunately it's that easy all you have to do is point at someone else and say them and they will kill those people like it's not that hard and it like that's it's believable that this guy could roll up and they don't know who he is and suddenly he has all this power um we're sort of we're very like emotionally scared creatures and uh we uh so you know stories in in, in that sense like there is a sense of stories kill i just i don't i don't necessarily believe again the inverse of that you know the sort yeah. of the, the the kind of this is somewhat like fabricated but also slightly true but like people always will look at a book like uncle tom's cabin and be like oh look this this work of literature made like a significant material difference in the lives of people because abraham lincoln was so moved etc 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 it's like well maybe a little bit perhaps but um I mean, also, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And again, the reality is that not everybody that reads X book is suddenly going to, you know, be transformed. Uh, but again, you know, we all I also have books in my life where I think about me reading them and actually like confronting and thinking about what I believe. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I, I mean, you, you also made, made me think of, um, I think it was Upton Sinclair who wrote The Jungle, all about the meatpacking industry in the States, and in theory, the president at the time, whose name escapes me. Uh, but it was early yes, 1900s. that is the other one that is often, like, yeah, thrown out there. That one, The Jungle, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Um, yes. And yeah, I think once in a once in a while they can have an influence, but it's maybe it's so that they come along at the right moment. As, as you said, a lot of other things are happening as well, right? And it all kind of connects together. And gosh, you know, I wish I had this off the tip of my tongue. I feel like uh, when you were talking about empathy uh, and, and literature and the sort of the instinct to believe that this is the ultimate way to teach it, um, Jay, I think I feel like of the three of us, maybe you're the most in touch with like what's what are they talking about in the literary you know channels and scenes. Um, am I wrong, or was there not a kind of pushback on that idea a year or two ago? Wasn't a there pushback like a, on which idea? I'm sorry. Sorry, the idea, the idea of uh, empathy and and art and art and you know, literature in particular being the way to teach people empathy, and that being like the big answer. Oh uh, yeah. And, and um, pushback and framing it as kind of like not useless, but don't push it. I feel like yet. yeah, I feel like that's actually one of those things that's sort of like an omnipresent capital D discourse, and it's mm -hmm. not one I particularly like because I don't feel like fiction is a zero-sum game um i feel like some fiction is going to be there just to like tell you a fun story and some fiction is going to be there to like make you think but i don't um i don't necessarily like think that that's i don't think that that's necessarily like a function we should like expect out of everything and expecting every story to have a moral or expecting every story to like translate some element of our daily life into like a, a meaningful bite-sized piece like i don't particularly think that's a good 
mm-hmm. um, healthy way to look at fiction. Um, I think that it like fiction is a lens and that lens can be turned on anything and toward anyone and used in a way that might be very enlightening, but it also can be used to like manipulate people in the same way that any story can be used to manipulate people. And so like, that's not unique to fiction, but I don't know. As far as that kind of stuff goes, it's definitely like kind of an omnipresent ongoing discourse. And it happens, I would say it happens more with stories that that people perceive as not having the right morals. And I'm going to be uh-huh. like using big quote marks around the right morals. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of that kind of element, I honestly like that's never something I'm personally looking for out of a story, although. Yeah, like I can't think of anything off the top of my head where I was like, wow, you know what's really wrong with that story is it's so amoral. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't really a problem story I have. Like this, uh, this has no opinions. Um, I mean, and, well, and the thing is that a story that doesn't have any opinions isn't very interesting. And so that's yeah. why very seldom do those get published. Um, the thing is that, you know, a story should have an opinion and that story that that opinion may or may not be right. But the I think the bigger picture is sort of like like the words are kind of escaping me at the moment unfortunately i would say that like i i don't i don't like the idea that like all fiction has to espouse a narrative that i agree with um it may be that it's espousing something i personally do not agree with and therefore i don't you know engage with it personally but um, as far as this story goes, I didn't feel like there was anything so ham-fisted about it that I couldn't like relate with the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's partially because this, the framework of the story is sort of very, again, um, as we sort of discussed earlier, like the the language is very straightforward. There's not like there's not like a lot of hidden meaning in the words, if that makes sense. Like it's very yeah. direct, and I don't feel like I don't feel like there's a lot of double meaning or anything like that going on. Um, and I think that that directness can read as like potentially very political if the message maybe don't listen to the man behind the curtain (laughs) is a problem that you have. Like, yeah, (laughs) like I enjoy being manipulated and lied to. Yeah, no, (laughs) right. Right? I mean, I mean, honestly, the problem is that some people, some people do (laughs) not mind that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I really, um, yeah, it's interesting because the, the, I just want entertainment, no messages get that out of my 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 story here thing i i have found myself encountering that a little bit more in the sword and sorcery scene than elsewhere which is interesting uh even um, going back of course to the uh i believe i've mocked them on here before uh lynn carter's uh opening to conan the buccaneer <laughs> where he's like if you just want to take a break from thinking about uh taxes and spiro agnew uh, and then read this conan story and i'm like oh spiro agnew um <laughs> <laughs> uh so so you know like it's a literally like a selling angle uh if you look for it in various corners over the years of, of sns i think mainly second wave onward um oh yeah well, I mean, I, the, the the other the other thing that you're you're kind of tipping your toes around is the like the puppies thing of like we just want ripping good yarns free of politics and it's like well if, if that's i may not be so a bold. thing that can that's not a thing that can exist in science yeah, if, I may, if, I, if i may be so bold uh fuck that lot and also <laughs> uh 
Thank you. But also, but also, I don't even think we need to specifically think about the, those characters who tend to be operating in bad faith, blah blah. blah. Like, let's just oh, look yeah, no, in I'm a just broader sense. The, I'm just saying in the sense of the like the 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 people who have tried to politicize the idea that a story has no politics. Which right, is right. Like, of course, the story has politics. Like every person has politics. Yeah. No, I uh, I feel like <laughs> sorry, just in the chat, Kevin's saying it. It's the Streisand effect by telling everyone not to think of Spiro Agnew. You see Spiro everywhere and Conan the Buccaneer. All right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread that book and I'm going to see if I can like reframe Thothamon in an essay as essentially being a Spiro Agnew stand-in. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I, the Canadian, will do this. Um, but yeah, sorry to come back to what you were saying. Um, see, I think we don't even have to go as far as refuting that sort of willfully uh, disruptive, uh, bad faith crowd. Uh, I mean, there are people who don't associate with that at all who, who would still feel like, yeah, come on, man, just give me a you know, cool sword fight and so on. And my thing is, it's, it's, it's interesting. If you look at it that way, then in a sense, this is a story where it's kind of a, a conflict of between forms because you have sword and sorcery where there's only supposed to be adventure, in quotation marks, I say this, and you have the fairy tale, which pretty much by definition, fairy tales are ways of conveying moral instructions. So uh, is there a conflict here? And I personally would say no, because... I firmly believe that there might be surface and below the surface um, messaging, right? I mean, I don't like these word politics. So I find that that word gets very messily applied uh, in these things. Um, but yeah, uh, there's definitely like opinion, point of view, whatever coming from the author, whether it's uh, all surface or all below surface or some mixture, because every single thing you do in a story is a choice. Every single thing you do. And those choices are informed by who you are and who you are is a collection of life experiences and opinions and so forth. So I think it is inescapable and it's why I tend not to even, I mean, I'm having fun doing it with you here. Uh, right. This is all good. We're good faith. We're doing it on purpose. But if someone were just like ambush me in a chat and be like, Hey, you know, what do you think about this message? Really messages, politics, or I just wouldn't, I would just say either a very brief version of what I'm saying now, which is like, I don't think it's possible. Like you'd have to have a story written by a void to have something without some kind of message in it. Um, even if that message is just like I, the author, have chosen to make this story entirely about uh, white guys and there's nobody else in this world. And, you know, I didn't think very hard about that because I just wanted to write a cool, fun adventure. But, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, like there's still something coming through there. Uh, so. So, yeah, I think the story, you know, I for me, the whole um, warning against strong men and demagogues and all that good stuff. I, I felt it was ultimately timeless. Weirdly, I didn't even actually think of Trump when the build that wall situation came into the story because I just was like, yeah, well, you know, that's what these these types always do. They always do everything they can to to physically and, and socially, you know, separate everybody. Uh, so it just made sense to me, I guess, uh, without having uh, driving my mind to contemporary events, although it's not a big leap. Um, and I think that's part of what I liked about it uh, in my reading, my my take on it. It was the timeless feeling of it. It felt like a good fairy tale moral woven into a story that had all the elements uh, that I tend to look for in a sword and sorcery tale. And so this ultimately gave me hope that this is a direction which could be explored further. Now, are there stories in the canon that would read as kind of like YASNS? None that come to mind, but I, I don't have literally every sword and sorcery story ever published on the tip of my tongue. So you know, listener, if you hear this and you think of something that might be interesting for us to check out in the vein of, you know, classic or maybe another contemporary uh, sword and sorcery story that's like YA question mark, um, please put it in the comments under the YouTube upload or, you know, email us at the New Age Sword and Sorcery, uh, you know, they go to the contact form on the website. Yeah, just whatever. Hit, hit us up somehow, um, because I think that's a direction that has certainly been not mined as heavily as others in the genre. 
And when we come back to the overall question that helped give birth to this very magazine, you know, how do we get more, uh, you know, young, diverse readers? How do you have to expand the audience? I often think like, well, if we could figure out YA for like the middle grade and teenage set reliably, um, that would be pretty cool. And I mean, some of it can just be the, the classic stories and the contemporary stories. I mean, I certainly read all kinds of bloody and thunderous things uh, when I was 13, 14, 15, whatever. But I also wonder about like writing stuff really specifically for that audience. Uh, so to that, um, maybe we'll, we'll go through our last few minutes here. Uh, Matt, do you think there's any need or an opportunity perhaps in writing more sort of sources stories that are broadly speaking in the vein of what Mark Rigney's done to try and get to those audiences? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, whatever you gotta do. I mean, I'm always going to be in favor of authors that feel, I mean, I don't know. I go back and forth with myself a lot because on the one hand, I, uh, I want a writer to have a point of view uh but at the same time there's like the literary critic part of me that also enjoys like ambiguity and there's a sense and there's a sort of tension between like what i want to see in like the material world which is often unambiguous and what i enjoy aesthetically uh which is usually ambiguous um not always but uh but anyway, um, so I think there's definitely, like, I think, I mean, even if the effect of just making people angry, because I think that also attracts people to a genre, so, uh, you know, if you want to write stories that you know are going to even make people mad, and I was just reading uh, <clears throat> this... The, the Death There's No Obstacle book by Michael Moorcock. It's not by him. It's a, it's a long interview with him. And he has this comment about how a lot of times some of the greatest genre stories come from people that are kind of tired of the genre and they're kind of mad at it for a certain reason. And so then they try to push it somewhere else. And I think that... that and I'm not, I don't know. I'm not saying that, like, Rigney is... Def, like, that he was consciously trying to do that, although maybe a little bit... Um, Playwrights tend to be a bit more like anarchic than uh, uh, other, other other types of writers, um, but you know I th I think it's a good gesture and I think it's a good impulse, uh, which isn't to say that like and people often misinterpret that to think oh that, that you just you hate this or whatever and it's like no you just you, you want to see it do something else because you it's been doing the same thing forever, um, mm. and you want to try and uh, widen it and again I don't know if again I don't like. I just, to me, this, I mean, we keep talking about YA, but I just, I'm thinking about, like, I just, this this is in the Tales from the Magician Skull, which, unless I'm mistaken, is not at all marketed toward any kind of YA audience, so. I, well, I, like, I, if I can interrupt for two seconds, I will say, I do know that Howard Andrew Jones has made a point of trying to keep the magazine approximately PG-13, because he would like younger readers you <laughs> to read it and for parents to be comfortable giving it to them. I mean that's nice. I, I I hope many parents bought this for their children, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just so on that hand, you know, I think I think his use of a child is really more of the sort of wanting to play in the fairy tale space than uh, um, it is. Uh, I don't know, but but you know, that's rambling at this point. But to answer your question, no, I think there's plenty of room, obviously, for 
difference in both audience and storytelling and form and type and genre and all that stuff. Uh, but do you think, you know, is it something where it would be worth trying to specifically target that age group? Or is it just like, no, nah, just get, you know, the classics and contemporary stuff also written for adults in the hands of that age group? I don't know. Like, I struggle with, if you're going to, like, try to target a specific audience with something, uh, I mean, there's a part of that that I think could work. Um, I don't know. It's just, that's always such a strange thing, especially because YA is so ambiguous in terms of what it's even trying to do uh like if you were to ask me about middle grade i think that that's something that i could think about more concretely to think oh yeah then you would want someone who is going to approach this in a very specific way for a very specific audience but with ya that crossover is so just kind of okay well well, let's stay stay focused then how how would you know in, in brief off the top of the dome here how would you hit up middle grade? How would you, you know, if you were tasked with writing a middle grade sword and sorcery story? Well, I'd go out and read a bunch of middle grade stuff, which is usually uh, short, so it gives you your word count, whatever that is. I don't know, like 40,000 words. It tells you who your protagonists are, which are young 12-year-olds. Um, they always got to have some, like, plucky companions or whatever. <laughs> and... Uh, so I don't know. I, I think like if you look at some of the stuff that's being done in those spaces right now, like the uh, just like that Wings of Fire, the Dragon series, uh, not, that that's not like sword and sorcery, but um, kids love that stuff. Percy Jackson, like hmm. which is, I mean that's middle grade. Like some people might call it YA, but it's it's not. Um, you know, like you've got your friends. You probably said it in some school, which I hate, but like <laughs> kids are in school, so you know that they that's what it's they relate to, to them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know. I guess that would those are just off the top of my head. But see, if you were to ask me for YA, I wouldn't know exactly. Like I don't know. Just you know, I don't that's, know because I'm not exactly fair. sure who the readership is for YA necessarily. Because a lot, like when you're a teenager, I don't want someone to go take me to the YA section necessarily. Like I would rather just go read. I don't know. And like, just take me over to the sci-fi section. You know, like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, as a horrible old wizened uh, crone of forty-one, uh, none of this existed when I was that age. I just raided the specfic section and read whatever the heck I could get my hands on. I mean, there were books targeted at younger readers, and I do remember enjoying one uh, author, Martin Godfrey, and a couple of others. But certainly it was just a, a, a side effect of me liking reading that I stumbled across those authors. It wasn't like my parents took me to like, okay, well, you're 10, so we got to take you to this shelf. Uh, you know, or librarians <laughs> were like, okay, you're 10, you're only allowed to go over this shelf. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a tricky one. Um, I, I don't think parents are necessarily doing that now, but the the marketing departments maybe are kind of trying to do that. Yeah, um, almost all of it is marketing, which is really the frustrating part of it is that like, most of what's happening there is not really organic growth. It's it's inorganic, and that's part of why it's so hard to nail down those audiences because there's nothing kids hate more than inauthenticity. They yep. smell a fake like nothing else, and if they think you are fake, they think you are inauthentic, they don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> and so like that is, that's really the, the difficult part of hitting that audience really well. Um, I also would like to point out that like part of what we what that the growth that you're maybe not seeing is that is that that growth exists in in different subgenre classifications. Like 
I would be willing to bet there's something that gets classed as YA that would technically fit all of our parameters for sword and sorcery that's targeted at a young adult audience. But it's not being marketed to us. It's being marketed to 15 to 25-year-old women. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Which is like, what I tend to think of when I think of, yeah, what quote-unquote YA is. That is basically, kind of... and the thing is that YA as a genre is sort of like, the stories that tend to be classed there are no longer really kind of limited to teenagers. And so that's why that's kind of difficult now is that the classification new adult, which is where um, the like stories of like 18 to 21 year olds used right. to go. Yeah, and that was well. like a two year. There was like a two year fad where the term new adult was being used for that. And then after that, that, that terminology kind of disappeared and all of those stories got funneled into the grand the grand canon of YA uh, with big quotation marks around it. And so like, I, I think that part of what we're, we're running up against here is that there probably, this stuff probably exists somewhere and we're just not seeing it because it's not being marketed to someone who likes science, like specifically like sword and sorcery, science fiction and fantasy stories. Now, I'm just imagining my, my new adult uh, barbarian story about a, a barbarian uh, leaving for college or something. Anyway. <laughs> but, I mean, uh... I mean, there's probably there's probably room for it on the shelf. I'm just saying, um, yeah. yeah, like a lot of that type of storytelling um, and, and to kind of like tag along with what, what Matt was saying in terms of like, yeah, a lot of those stories take place in a school or educational <laughs> setting, like middle grade, middle grade leading into YA. There's definitely kind of like a there's like a runway and then there's a cliff. And, and like, I think that I think that we're losing a lot of readers at that cliff. Um, I've read a lot about how specifically like young, like teenage boys and that general that general crowd is kind of like being pushed out of the library a little bit because there's not as much stuff that is current that is made for them. And that's that kind of sucks. And that's sort of like if if there's any spot that I would say is like, well, that's a gap we could immediately fill. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would say that like YA in terms of like, you know, big quotation marks where it's like middle grade YA. Um, that that's, I would say like something that's on that borderline where like you're attracting readers that are probably like 13 to 17. But the problem is that you're not even at that point, you're not even competing against other books. You're competing against like Fortnite and other video games and, you know, Snapchat and every other app that's on their phone. Like you're competing against a lot of things that are not books. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, after that and also be authentic. That's a tall order. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd like to think there's ways of working around that, but now we're starting out to sort of bigger, bigger publishing things. Uh, I mean, would, would a gaming tie-in uh, fiction be considered right for boy readers? Uh, Kevin's putting into the chat here. You know, 40K, D&D, &D, Star Wars, all, you know, is always, almost always filed with the adult SFF. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking back to, like, when I was in high school, like, all of the sci-fi and fantasy dorks were all about the Forbidden Realms books. So, like, mm. <laughs> like, that was definitely, like... And I think that the I think that the idea that that books that books that are specifically for kids is is something that's relatively new in a marketing thing in terms of like the narrow baskets of like kids this age to this age and this age to this age and like yeah it used to just be sort of like here's the like picture book section and here's the like chapter book section and um, that has that has evolved as marketing has has you know branched into these more granular. Um, 
categories. Yeah, and then it's like as an author or as a small publisher uh, trying to connect with these audiences, uh, it's like who are you writing or publishing for? You know, the the readers or the marketers. Um, and sometimes yeah. it's none of them. Oh well, okay. So yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyways. I, yeah, that's okay. I, I feel I feel like with this particular conversation going longer, we've sort of spiraled out from um, our Oregon story. But I also feel like I don't know. I feel like I've said everything I would like to say about it. I mean, Matt, do you feel is there anything we we missed or that you've you've thought of uh, you know since you last spoke? Um, I like that Rigney seems to be someone who thinks about symbols and again going to his thinking about him being a playwright, but also again thinking about this Moorcock stuff I just read, who's very big on symbols. But like just a simple thing of like introducing the tower, introducing the idea of story, introducing the pen introducing um these again symbols that then come back around sort of recontextualize and i think you know again i always try to think about like something i could take from a story and put in my own writing is like the importance of symbols and not being afraid to be like structural or like formulaic about it you know because if you if you introduce that you've got to consciously think to yourself okay well i need to make sure it gets introduced here and it gets paid off here and it comes back around here. Like you've got to make those choices formally. Um, so that's another thing that I liked about this. The ants is another motif that like comes back, which I thought was really interesting. Like the ants yes. that sort of eat him or like attack him or in his little like self flagellation stuff. And then the giant ants. I love that. Good. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you guys what's up, but first cover me. ants. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, was... it's it's like it's the it's the martyr move, you know, like paint yourself mm -hmm. out to be a victim, and that you're willing to sacrifice for something, and like, you know. Oh yeah, uh, like, I think that it was also good because it was just so ghoulish. Like yeah, it added, it, was... it made him like undeniably creepy in a way that like it felt like it felt like the rest of the story had kind of it been inured to, and yet Danica was definitely like, uh, this is really weird. Yes, and that's how you know the people are just gone because they look at that and they're like, hmm, yeah, that's that's normal that's behavior. <laughs> that that, that means he knows things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's oh, the yeah. guy in Monty Python who's like weighing ducks for the witches or whatever. Like, Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like doing something kind of silly insidious. and strange and therefore there's power <laughs> in the strangeness. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I uh, like all the symbols and all that stuff. And I mean, even the mm -hmm. ants has this idea of like masses and sort of um Hive mind. like consciousness versus the individualness mm. of era etc yeah good call uh all right uh jay was there anything uh that has been brought up yet that you just want to throw out at the end here no um i feel like we pretty much got everything i had on my uh on my list as it were this, okay um, i'm just gonna say that great. i really enjoyed it yeah, no, this was, this was a good one, I think. Uh, I, I certainly uh, will just throw out one moment uh, from the story that I really loved, which felt very like, oh, yeah, I'm reading about a kid, was when uh, Danica is trying to uh, begin her journey to break in, and she sees a bunch of dead bodies, and then gets the impression they're going to get up and, and get her, and she's like, oh, I think this is illusion. I know. And she rubs the, like, dead slugs into her face until she's so grossed out that she can't, like, focus enough to see the illusion or whatever. Like, am I, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, she did do that. Yes. Yeah. So, like, I, I, I really, really, really got a kick out of that because like, I, I actually had to reread it uh, this time because I was like, wait, is there like a specific thing about slugs being anti-illusions? Or I was like, no, no, the kids just grossed out, and that, that, and replacing one stimuli with another, <laughs> like, awesome. 
She also may or may not have killed her father. We don't really. Uh, I think I think she, I think she did. <laughs> I, I feel like, like that was. I feel like almost answering that question would have broken the bubble, though. Yeah, because then she can't be like sort of innocent anymore after that. Yeah, actually, that reminds me of a question I meant to ask. Uh, we're, we're we're starting to run long, so let's uh, I don't know stick to the news headlines on it. But does this story feel over, or you know, I mean, this particular tale is, but. Would you read uh, Danica to Electric, Bo- Electric Boogaloo? Like, would you read more Danica? Does this feel like it would launch a series, perhaps a marketable series of novellas? I don't know. You know, like, uh, or, or does it feel like, no, this works best as a one and done? Uh, Jay, you start. Oh, for me, it's definitely a soap bubble. I would probably not want to revisit this character unless, like, the thing that happened to her at the end of this was somehow transformative. Like, something of this event like more so not like transformative like oh like obviously she's different now but Mm. like the experiences that she's having here like i i don't know i think i think i like leaving it where it is if that makes sense yeah fair enough and how about you matt i also think it's just the sort of one and done like again it's like it's the fairy tale thing where like it ends and usually fairy tales end in a place where they you know they a lot would happen after, but you can't do that because they would break the effect. Like, you can't deal with the consequences in a real way because it would break the kind of fantasy of it. If if Rigney were to return to Danica, I feel like he would have to jump, like, way in the future as she's dealing with, like, the trauma of whatever, you know, what she just went through. Um, but no, I think it works best as a sort of, like, a fable. Um, so it has a nice sort of closed kind of loop. And, and, it, and it, it sort of tells you, like, you're not supposed to think about you know the the sort of like the realism here like that's not really the point the point is the sort of like lessons or the 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 morality that's baked into the thing right on i i feel like i agree with you if it was to continue you'd want a time jump i feel like if this is a story about you know danica as a tween i want the next one to be at least her late teens and Maybe then make it a loose trilogy and have a third one, you know, with her as a young adult or <laughs> uh, or maybe an old crone. That's really leap ahead. Um, but I suspect that my desire for that is nothing to do with the story feeling incomplete. It is definitely a complete tale. It works fine as is, but I really liked it. So <laughs> I, uh, I I want more Danica. And, I, I, you know, I, I find I have to be wary of that as a writer sometimes when I'm working on my own stuff. And I'm like, this this can just be one story. It doesn't have to be more, even if I'm really enjoying it. Uh, sometimes it just it's better to leave it as is. So speaking of leaving it, uh, let's let's tie a bow on this one. I think this was a great chat. Again, thank you so much, uh, Matt and Jay, for for joining me for this. I really appreciated that. Thank you very much to Kevin for handling the technical side of recording this. We will have this up. Well, I guess if you're hearing this, uh, you probably it's uh, either on YouTube or uh, eventually uh, thrown up as a bonus episode on the So I'm Running a Novel podcast, keeping the heart beating over there while I uh, work on finishing the outline for the novel. So. What's the next story chat going to be? Well, um, people have been asking me, when are you guys going to discuss a story from New Age Thorn Sorcery, which I've felt strange about <laughs> up until this point, because, you know, I, I'm the editor of the magazine. And also, you know, what if I slip out some stuff that I shouldn't say about like the editing process or whatever that might, you know, make an author irritated with me? You know, it was kind of dirty laundry to be like, oh, well, on this draft, you know, but uh, Christopher Rao, uh, author uh, and uh, fan of the magazine, suggested something really cool on the New Age Sword and Sorcery Discord recently that I uh, DM'd him later and was like, hey, what if we did this? And he's like, yeah. So I have his blessing, um, and he will probably join us for the panel in January on a Tuesday. 
We'll have to have it on a Tuesday. Uh, January 9th at 7 p.m. EST is when the recording slash stage performance will be. Uh, so what's the exercise, Oliver? Well, we have been ever so lucky uh, to get Michael Moorcock himself to write an original Elric tale, Folk of the Forest, which is in New Edge Sword Sorcery issue number one. And uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, everybody else in the issues I'm very proud of as well, but for obvious reasons, it's, a, it's an easy brag to say we have a Moorcock Elric story. And as far as I'm aware, certainly in, in published works, it is the most recent Elric story. And Christopher Rowe was like, well, what if we did like a double bill? What if we read that, but also read the very first Elric story as it was very first published? I'm talking about The Dreaming City, which came out in 1961. And if you go back and read it as it was originally published, uh, which can be found on PDF for free in various corners online uh, and not being shifty, it's old enough, it's been scanned a bunch of times, whatever it's done. Um, it's kind of neat. Like right on the first page, I found big differences between uh, that and later versions of the story. I mean, Martin Moorcock famously likes to go back and revise things before they get republished, uh, as well as just, you know, interesting conflicts or whatever contrasts with the way the world of Elric would be realized later in Elric's characterization and all that. So, yeah, for the next one, we're going to look at the very beginning of Elric and the, uh, I don't know if it'll be the end, maybe there's more Elric coming, but certainly the uh, current most recent Elric uh, with about 61 years between them. I think that'll be kind of a fun exercise and we need to see what we get into, not just in terms of the differences between the Elrics and uh, the evolution of Mike's, uh, Michael Moorcock's, uh, I shouldn't just call him Mike, but that's how he signs, signs his emails, uh, the evolution of Michael Moorcock's writing, but also maybe just talking about the, the pleasure of seeing characters and authors evolve over long stretches. Like, I enjoy Stephen King, hot take, he's interesting, um, but mainly what I've enjoyed with him is his Dark Tower series because of how it stretches out over so much of his career that you can watch him evolve. So I think that could be a fun meta topic for the whole thing. Anyway, yeah, join us uh, January 9th, 7 p.m. EST on the Discord if you're on there, and uh, otherwise it'll be tossed up on YouTube and then eventually uh, the podcast after that. All right, uh, thanks again, Jay and Matt, and uh, good night to y'all. Bye. Take care. Bye. <laughs>